Well, good afternoon. So great to see these smiling faces here uh, to worship today. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you making signs? Okay. So I'm going to read a passage. Actually, we're going to read two passages today. We're really going out on a limb. If you want to open your Bibles and join me, feel free. We're going to be reading from the book of Matthew, the birth of Jesus, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, and then we're going to jump over to Luke, chapter 2. So, if you'd like to follow along, Matthew 1, starting to verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, if we hop over to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, Galilee from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that uh, will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, 
the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And this concludes the reading this afternoon. Merry Christmas, church. The first thing we're going to have to do is remove these clips, because I don't know if they've been bugging anybody else, but I haven't been able to stop looking at them since we got here, since the first song. <laughs> My attention to detail won't allow it. Here's a, here's a free Christmas gift for you guys, by the way, too. If you call your OCD attention to detail, you can herald it as a virtue. So hopefully, you know, that'll work for you guys. <laughs> so um, it is good to be here tonight. Thank you, Ross, for reading that story. It is good to remember these things, to know why we are here, to know what God has done for his people. And so I wanted to start out uh, this afternoon by reminding us, or I say something that I think that we all know and agree about, that timing is important. Uh, we all love it when something has good timing, don't we not? And so, for example, if I could try to illustrate this, um, you know, I like the ocean very much. I don't like the sand, but I like the beach, I like the ocean. And when I'm at the ocean, what I like to do usually, if not just laying there and reading, is when I get into the water to go boogie boarding. And I was actually hoping that uh, Andy Pryor was going to be here, because I, I think this what I'm thinking of here is the same for surfing, but I don't see him, but I was going to ask him. But when you're on a boogie board, you have to kind of wait for the exact right time for the wave to be coming. And then you want to catch it right at the time when it's going in. If you, if you get a little bit too early or too late, you miss all of the momentum. You have to time it just perfectly. And so, you know, timing matters. Uh, good timing matters. The, the perf there's, a, for example, the perfect time for an engagement proposal. A punch landed at the right time in a boxing match can cause the fight to go in a totally new direction. A three-point basket in a basketball game could really take the air out from an opposing team's run at the lead. Flowers and a bottle of wine for your wife after a long day that she had is a really helpful thing. A word of exhortation or conviction when a brother or sister is wandering in sin and indulging in sin is very helpful. So timing matters with all of these things. Timing makes all of those things, and, and many other things, if we were to sit here and think about them, all the more effective and purposeful. And there's even such a thing as bad timing, of course. Like We've all dealt with that feeling, well, this is, just, this is just happening now at the wrong time, bad timing. And this concept of timing is really an interesting matter if you actually ponder it, because the matter of timing is really a creature thing. God, Almighty God, is eternal. He transcends time, and the timing of events for Him is much different than it is for us. Presumably, if it wasn't for His sovereign act of creation, time might be utterly meaningless for Yahweh. Uh, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Time is somehow mysteriously even just different for Him, even now that He has created as different for God the Father, different for God the Son, different for God the Holy Spirit. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, right? So, nevertheless, God is concerned with time now because the Creator has made creatures, us, 
to be the objects of his affection, and time impacts us, well, all of the time. We are, we are in time. We are, we're dealing with it all the time. And I, for one, am grateful for the timing of Christmas this year. Of course, Christmas comes this time of year, every year for us, doesn't it? But there are things which Christmas reminds us of that I am especially grateful to be thinking about now, things that we especially, especially needed to be reminded of here in 2020, things I think that we have allowed as a church, as a whole, uh, we've allowed ourselves to forget some or allowed to be regulated to the back of our minds almost against all the craziness of 2020. Things which would be good to have at the forefront of our minds as we move into 2021, because who knows what the Lord has in store for us in this coming year. This year has been different for us, hasn't it, collectively? If you reflect back, it has been a, it's been a different year. Nevertheless, God has been the same throughout all of it, and He is accomplishing His purposes through it. So I'm glad for the timing of Christmas now, but we also need to be certain about what Christmas is and, and what it is not. So Christians all across the world are gathering in light of this holiday called Christmas. But you know, I hope, that Christmas is not a holiday that God commands us to celebrate specifically in December every year, for example. You know, we don't read of God instituting Christmas celebrations, is what I'm wanting to say. But oh, how great a joy it is to celebrate the birth of the Redeemer. Religion is meant to increase our joy, to increase our happiness, and the true religion must therefore do that better than any imposter. And the birth of our Savior brings tidings of comfort and joy. So as I was saying, you know, it is a good thing that we're thinking of these things, especially today and especially now in 2020. So then, since we're gathering especially to remember the birth of our Savior and the implications of it, we also need to be aware of what Christmas is not. Uh, there are all these platitudes which exist today about this holiday which aren't totally bad, but they fail to understand what Christmas is really about. And so that's, when, I, when we get to it here in just a moment, that's what I really want us to think about. In what we call Christmas, you know, God was bringing to fruition His perfectly planned purchase of people so that He may reign over us and with us in glad submission. Okay, in, in what we call Christmas, this is God's perfectly planned purchase of people, uh, that he might reign over us in a glad submission. And that's good news, church. Therefore, you know, Christmas is not simply just a time for families to be together, though we love to do that. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, Christmas is not for the children, humanly speaking. Christmas isn't about trees and lights and presents, though all of those things are, could be good and fine in context. Uh, this time of year isn't about getting into the spirit of Christmas. It's not about um, getting Christmas into your heart or something like that, or Christmas isn't in Bethlehem. Christmas isn't about turning Jesus into some sort of representative of woke religion where he's this refugee or migrant that you can hold up and, and use to uh, you know, try to advance your own narrative. Christmas is greater than all of that. Christmas isn't about an objective reality. And we find the fullest meaning of Christmas at the cross and at the resurrection. So if you have your Bible with me, you could turn to Galatians 4, please. That's where we'll spend most of our time, short amount of time. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. We find ourselves able and privileged to be able to gather today on Christmas Eve to celebrate a specific aspect of the Christian faith the birth of our Savior, and just some of the implications that come with that. To celebrate and stand in awe of the Incarnation and the implication of this act 
for our lives. The origins of the holiday may be suspect. The family traditions that we have might be suspect. What is not suspect, what is not merely neutral tradition, is that the Son of God committed to uphold His part of the covenant of redemption and entered into creation roughly 2,000 years ago. That is fact. That is objective truth. And we gather in light of that. So let's read our text, just two verses, beginning at verse 4. The reading of God's holy, inspired, and, and sufficient word says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Amen. That ends the reading of God's holy word. So timing is important, isn't it? When we think about what Christmas is, as we're told here in Galatians 4, timing played a role. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The, the fullness of time came. And there are a few things we should consider about this just briefly. First, when we remember Christmas, that is, when we remember the incarnation of the Son of God, we are in fact considering God's perfect plan. His perfect time of redemption for people He chose in Christ before creation, before even the fall happened, before even the fall was decreed. And we know it's a plan. It's not some Hail Mary pass where God is trying to fix this problem that He just observes. It's, it's a plan that He was aware of. The taking on of a human nature is God's perfect plan to save, to save us, and it happened at the fullness of time. Listen to 18th century pastor and theologian John Gill here. He says, The time agreed and fixed upon between God and His Son from all eternity in the council and covenant of peace, by that he means the, the covenant of redemption, when the Son of God should assume human nature, which time was diligently searched into by the prophets, was revealed unto them and predicted by them. So you see, it's, it's the agreed upon time, this fullness of time. This is God's plan of redemption unfolding in the birth of the Son. It's why we gather this afternoon. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all agree to save a people. The Father chooses, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. The Son takes on flesh, John 1, 14, and lives and dies for His people, John 10, Romans 5. The Spirit draws us to a place of belief, Titus 3, 5. Yahweh is totally and fully involved in our salvation. And at the fullness of time, when this plan that God had demanded it, God sent forth His Son. It is a Merry Christmas. It is a Happy Christmas indeed. The fullness of time. There were things that must have happened, things that, didn't, that did happen according to the wise counsel of the Lord leading up to this, before the Son was sent forth into the world. It didn't come late. It didn't come early. It happened at the right time, the fullness of time. In a way, we might think of the events of history as the filling up of a cup. Uh, and God was building up to this point. And so you have the first Adam in the garden, and he transgressed the covenant, Hosea 6-7. Properly, we call this covenant that God was in with Adam the covenant of works. Not a covenant of works, but the covenant of works. Adam failed to keep the law of God specifically, um, obeying God, and explicitly to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He failed there. He broke the covenant. He sinned and he plunged himself 
and all of us, every person that was ever born from him under the law. The law now being an unattainable standard of righteousness that condemns men rather than being the peace and joy that we get to live in. The law has always been good. It has always been right. It has always showed us what God is like himself. But when Adam fell there, when he disobeyed God, he became under the law and we all too were the same. Where The law then was this means by which we stood condemned because we could not meet this righteous standard. And it, the law is not for us this joy that we live in until a person is saved. When a person is saved, then we enjoy God's law again. Then we look at it as the, way, the right way that we should live. We desire to live that way that God might be glorified and, and honored, not because it saves us, of course, not at all, but because we have been saved. But before our salvation, we were under the law. It was a righteous standard that was over us and condemned us. This was the plan of God to bring glory to himself, the, the Felix culpa, the fortunate fall. And so the, the cup of time begins to fill up here in the garden. Mankind continues to sin, and then God intervenes again, this time through Noah. He makes a covenant with him after judging sin on a grand scale and basically exhorts all of creation to continue on with God's plan for everything in this covenant. God's plan gets more specific after this as he singles out one man, a man from the east named Abram. He enters into covenant with him and he promises him many things, including that all of the families of earth would be blessed in him. A seed is promised to him that will bring these spiritual blessings to pass. But these truths, many of them are veiled. It is a mystery that is seen in shadows and types all throughout the Old Testament. And then God continues his plan this, this cup continues to fill, to fill up, and he continues this plan in, in a descendant of Abraham, one of a descendant that is of the same nationality and of faith even. Moses enters into covenant with God, and in Moses, God reveals the law that Adam put all of mankind under. But he doesn't reveal it to every person across the world. He reveals it to Abraham's people, to the Israelites. And he promises a savior of all people to come from this nation through a covenant of grace. And then he enters into a one more covenant with another descendant of Abraham, with David. And he promises that the Messiah, the savior, will be a king, a king from the lineage of David. And so history continues on. These promises of God ever driving history as it unfolds until the fullness of time. Matthew begins his gospel this way for this reason. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's tying it back to those things because those promises contained in there were building up to this fullness of time when Christ would come. Our, our cup analogy is full at this point. And so God sent forth his son at the fullness of time. We're pressed for time tonight, so this is the short version. But everything that has ever happened in history was building up to this point. It was happening by the providential hand of God for his own glory. And this is what we celebrate Christmas for, church, that God would send forth his son. This was the fullness of time. Secondly, when this fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Now, I would refer you to the sermons that Nick has been preaching on the Lord's Day in the month of December for more on this. So I won't spend much time here because this great mystery of the faith has been covered in detail by Nick really well the last few weeks. 
It is a great mystery church. It's not irrational, but it is above reason. It's impossible for us to fully comprehend, but we apprehend it by faith, how it is that God was born. It is a great mystery. I've been joking with Nick even in the past few weeks that in preaching on this topic, you put yourself in danger of being a heretic. And, and be assured, you know, our brother has not been a heretic at all over these past weeks. He's not slipped into that. But if you're not at least on that razor's edge with this topic where the eternal son takes on a human nature, you're not really thinking about this topic rightly. It is a great mystery. It is wonderful. It's that complex. Think of what it means in brief, okay, for the Son of God to have been born from a woman. The eternal God who never changes, the person of the Son, took to himself a human nature. It didn't change his divine nature in any way. It wasn't added to the divine nature so as to change it or to be mixed with the divine nature, but it was joined to the person of the Son. So this person, the second member of the Trinity, would be forever from that moment on truly God and truly man. The one who spoke everything into existence had to learn to speak. The one who knows all things learned. It's a wonderful mystery. It is, it is. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks looking at the fine details of these things. And the point that Paul is making here in Galatians is that apart from this act, there would be no salvation. Real God invades the real world and real space to be in a position of having to keep the law. His own law, mind you. His own law. Not someone else's law. His own law. And now as our cup of time overflows, as it were, Jesus keeps the law perfectly and goes to the cross to satisfy the curse of the law. The wrath of the Father, the wrath of the Son, the wrath of the Spirit against the sin of, of the elect is poured out upon the Son, upon Jesus. He takes it upon himself so that it wouldn't be poured out upon us so that we could be redeemed, so that we who are under the law might receive the adoption as sons, as our text in Galatians 4 puts it. This is the meaning of Christmas, friends. It's not about politicizing Jesus and turning him into a migrant or a refugee. The meaning of Christmas isn't about family dinner and opening presents in the morning. We can't lose sight of the real meaning of Christmas, church, because it's about more than a good time and having a good spirit about yourself. The real message of Christmas is one that gives us joy and proclaims hope to us because a Savior has come, and that means something. You see, Christmas is, in fact, an indictment upon our immorality. It is a revelation against our rebellion. It is a statement regarding our sin. It is a glimpse of the guilt of mankind. If our sin wasn't so great, church, there would be no need for the incarnation. No need for such a great miracle. A miracle that proclaims redemption for those who are in rebellion. A miracle that proclaims salvation from sin. A miracle that brings gladness out of our guilt. A miracle so great that this holiday is celebrated by people in pretty much every place of the world, whether in pretense or in truth. You ever think about that, how widespread the celebration of the, the birth of the Savior is? It's, it's, almost, it's almost everywhere, almost in every nation. A miracle so great that we literally split time around the time of the incarnation. Everything in history before it we call B.C., before Christ. That's not necessarily true, right? I mean, there is no 
before Christ, he's eternal, but it means to say that before Christ entered the world, before Christ was born of a woman. And that event splits time for us so that we now refer to our present day as A.D., Anno Domini, in, in the year of our Lord. Or that's what it was referred to before the secularists got to it, right? And so, in closing for us, what I wanted to do for the sake of time is to just think of one implication, an application that we see from this miracle that happened in the incarnation of God the Son. This point that I want to close with, that I hope will be an encouragement for us all going into 2021, because we need that, which is something that I think we should always be aware of and operating out of, is implicit in the term Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. What that tells us, this, this little phrase, A.D., Anno Domini, is that Christ is living and it's his year. It's his time. He is over it. In other words, church, he is reigning. And the scriptures here, mind you, they're not implicit on this matter. They are explicit that Christ is reigning, that he is king. You see, Jesus wasn't just some baby born in a manger. That was the king of every nation in that trough, even then as a baby. That was the ruler of the cosmos upon the cross, upholding the whole universe by the power of his word, even then. And he lives forever reigning at the right hand of the Father. He's over every nation, church. And we, when we celebrate Christmas, what we are in fact celebrating is the coming of a king. It's the coming of our king that we joyfully recognize and love and worship and get to sit under. We're familiar with Isaiah's prophecy, I'm sure. Isaiah chapter 9. God gives Isaiah this prophecy after telling his people that they'll be undone for their sin and judgment will come by a, a pagan nation. But in verse 6 and 7, he says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, you know, no matter what happens in 2021, church, this fact does not change. The government is on his shoulder. Even tyrant governments, even governments that want to impose themselves upon the freedoms of church, of our church experience even, Christ Jesus is over them and will one day they have to answer to him. But we as the church need to remember that we belong to his kingdom first. And we should rejoice that Christ is king. We can rejoice every day that Christ is king because he is king and the government is on his shoulders. And as verse 7 says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You see, Christ's kingdom, friends, it grows spiritually. It grows through conversions. And people are going to submit to him no matter what. That's what we pray for in the Lord's, in the Lord's prayer, isn't it? that his kingdom will come, that means, in a very real sense, if you think about it, the destruction of his enemies. Does it not? Uh, Psalm 9, 19 through 20 says this, says, Arise, O Lord, let not men prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. 
Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Pause. Think about that. You see, submission to the Lord happens in two ways, church. It happens with glad submission or simply submission, doesn't it? Christ defeats his enemies through the power of the gospel, and we die to ourselves, we die with him, so the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in him who loved us and gave himself for us, and we have joyful and glad submission to him, or there will be submission when the Lord comes in judgment. It's either or, brothers or sisters. There's no middle ground here. And I've been confused lately, because I've been seeing prominent evangelicals downcry what I've read and that they call Christian nationalism. Have you guys seen some of that as well? Have you seen people talking about this thing called Christian nationalism, how bad it is? It's been deemed as evil. Now, it could be that I'm missing the point about what they're making. That's happened before. And certainly, um, the charismatic shenanigans that happened at the... this recent Trump rally, they're not monolithic with Christianity. But I want us to think, what's wrong with Christian nationalism? Isn't that what we want? Don't we want people to come under glad submission to the Lord Jesus? Don't we want everyone to bow the knee in faith and in love for Christ? To the King who is worthy of being followed, who is worthy of worship, people from every nation, every nation belongs to Him as it is. So maybe these, these so-called evangelical leaders that are complaining about Christian national, national, nationalism, maybe they're complaining about something else. Maybe they're complaining about American nationalism. That I would understand some a bit more. Don't get me wrong here. Don't misunderstand me. It's good to be patriotic. We should be thankful for the freedoms that we have in America. They are, they're, they're leaving us. You see that, I hope. You see that this Christmas season, that those things are leaving us. They're slipping away right before our eyes. And rightly so from a standpoint of the holiness of the Lord. America has been heaping up judgment for herself for decades. Uh, this gender revolution where a man can be a woman and vice versa, versa, and this is celebrated when homosexuality and sexual immorality are celebrated, judgment will come upon a nation. Uh, you know, Herod himself would probably would have loved to have Planned Parenthood operating in his kingdom in his day when he sought to kill the coming king as an infant. And Planned Parenthood and the so-called clinics like them are responsible for over 60 million deaths since 1973. 60 million murders. So if these evangelicals are downcrying Christian nationalism because it supports and it allows those things in America, well, okay, but that's not even true. True Christians hate those things because the Lord hates those things as well. So maybe don't even call that Christian nationalism because church, Christian nationalism is what Christmas is about. It's about the king coming to the world to submit the nations to himself. He's not going to fail in this work, beloved. He's been reigning, he is reigning, and he will forever reign. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and all nations belong to him. Don't we want to see his elect redeemed? Don't we want to see his people saved? Don't we want to see all the nations worshiping the Lord? Isn't that, don't we love it? Don't we want that for everyone else? God sent forth his son at the fullness of time to promise that very thing, to redeem a people under the law, 
that he might make us his sons and his daughters, that he might give to us adoption to his family, that we might be heirs of his kingdom, the kingdom of which he rules over perfectly. That is good news, church. That is what Christmas is about. And so may we ever rejoice knowing this, that no matter what happens, God is good. He has saved and he reigns. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for Christmas. And it is easy for us to get caught up in the cultural festivities that we have been so blessed to enjoy. We don't even know how long it is that we'll be able to enjoy these things, Lord. But while we have them, we do praise you and thank you for the ability to gather with our families and our loved ones and here at church to be able to consider what your word says and consider what it is that you have done. We know, Lord, that you were not some helpless babe in a manger that you are at that very point king, then reigning, even then. It is a wonderful mystery that our minds can't fully comprehend, but we ask that you would enlighten our hearts and give to us this assurance that you are the king, that you are reigning, that no matter what happens, your kingdom cannot be prevailed against. You are greater than anything in this world, Lord. And so we look to you and we are satisfied in you. Be glorified tonight. Draw us near to you as we continue to sing your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.